Hi, I'm Jennifer Wilde, and you're listening to Sober Exposure. If it's about recovery, we're going to cover it. It's like one big therapy session, but it's free. So thanks for joining our dysfunctional family as we uncover recovery with Sober Exposure. Let's go. Sober Exposure, it's Jennifer Wild, and I am so excited to bring you this show today because this show is personal, all right? I, I chose Claudia, Claudia Christian, to come on the show, Sober Exposure. Welcome. Thank you so much. Clapping, 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 because Claudia actually discovered for herself how to cure her own alcoholism, which is remarkable. Um, I, I want to hear your story. I want to hear what happened, what it was like, what it's like now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to the journey and what you've discovered. Absolutely. I'm handing this over to you because you guys listen up. We have okay. solutions today. I got a solution for you right here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And if you noticed, the motto of my nonprofit organization is options save lives. And that's that is really the core belief in in my experience in recovery is that not one thing works for everybody. So there has to be a lot of different options. Um, I advocate a treatment called the Sinclair method, which is targeted use of naltrexone, which I used for my own alcohol use disorder back in 2009. Mm -hmm. I had tried everything. Um, I did AA in 17 different meetings, two different countries. I did hypnotherapy. I did psychotherapy. Um, I did cognitive behavioral therapy. I went to a, a rehab facility. I changed my diet. I did vitamin therapy. I mean, you name it. Everything. Okay. Herbs, Herbs, enchilada. You, yeah, whatever yeah. was available, whatever I could afford, I threw my money at, threw my time at, threw my effort at, my motivation. And I kept relapsing because of the debilitating cravings that I was experiencing. And my last relapse occurred in 2009. And I, at that point, was um, really, really scared because I had gone cold turkey after uh, a bender. And I started losing motor control and, and I realized that I could stroke out. I'd heard horrible stories about people, you know, losing, I mean, stroking or, or worse, dying. So I called a friend and they took me to a medical detox, my first and only. Mm. And that was a really, really negative experience. I have to say I, it was humiliating. We judged. There was no love in the room. There was it was just clear that they were out there for the money, the three thousand bucks. I got a couple of pills. I was shoved in a room with a woman who was really having a, um, a psychotic breakdown. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is this is so inhumane. Mm -hmm. And as I, I checked myself out early because the medication calmed me down and I was fine. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna just take every flyer they have in their waiting room. So I took every single flyer that was anything about alcohol. <laughs> alcohol. Right. I took them all home and I started to read them. And one of them stood out to me as a shot. And I, and I researched it and it said it gets rid of cravings. So I researched it and I found out that the key ingredient was naltrexone. So I Googled naltrexone and this book popped up and it said the cure for alcoholism. And I was like, yeah, right. Yeah. And there is no cure. So I, I read the free chapter of the book and, and I come from a family of doctors and, and researchers and, and also alcoholics. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and something really spoke to me in this because I thought, wow, this is, this is based in science. This is based in research. This is, this is Pavlov's dog in reverse. This is Pavlovian thought. This is using an opiate blocker to block the reinforcement from alcohol. And that's really my problem is that I get 
too much of a reward from it. That's hence the cravings when I don't have it. And so I thought, wow, this makes sense. And it talked about um, the alcohol deprivation effect, which, which, which is what occurs when somebody is starving their brain of ethanol. So essentially when you go sober, you see a lot of people, they have a honeymoon period of three to four months and then they relapse. The pink it, cloud, we call it, right, yeah. Yeah, it, the pink cloud. And the, and the thing is, is that the relapse occurs because the lizard keeps whispering to you that you're not an alcoholic, you have three months of sobriety, you don't have a problem, you can have one drink, come on, just one drink. And then we're back to the racetracks. And unfortunately, this time around, we drink even heavier because of the alcohol deprivation effect. We've been depriving our brain of alcohol and our brain is now going more and that lizard is now a dragon and it's taking over our entire life. So this was my life. Basically, my life was 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 just broken into benders and sobriety. And when I was sober, I was miserable because I was craving. So make a long story short, I, I decided that I would get naltrexone and I went to my GP and he flat out refused me. First of all, he said, I'm not going to give you an opiate. I was like, dude, even I know it's an opiate blocker. You, you, you get no reward from this. This is not a happy drug. It's not a replacement drug. It's not methadone or BUP or anything. I thought, what an idiot. So I went to another doctor and he said, well, you know, I, I just I think you should just, you know, how much are you drinking anyway? And I said, I'll go through bottles of wine. He goes, oh, I drink red wine every night. <laughs> I mean, this was my OK. So then I said, oh, fine, do a liver scan. And at this point, I had been a couple months abstinent, obviously. So they did a liver scan and he said, your liver's fine. And I was like, oh, my God, what is it going to take? For somebody to give me this medication, I'm admitting that I am an alcoholic. <laughs> I do, I cannot control this. And no, none of these men would give me a bloody prescription. So I ended up having to order it online. Now, mind you, anyone listening now, please stop. Do not order it online because I'm going to tell you what you can do if you need it. You can get it anywhere in the United States and pretty much anywhere in the world now, thanks to the work that my nonprofit has done and also telemedicine, which really prospered during the pandemic. Anyway, so I ordered naltrexone from India and six weeks later, it still hadn't been there. And I'm crying on the phone to this guy in India going, you don't understand it's life or death because by now the cravings have come back. The pink. Well, cloud yeah. Gone. And I'm gone. just amazed. You knew this is like a, you like a spiritual thing almost because you knew in your heart that this was going to work. Well, no, this is the this is the thing, Jen. I I I, I was so desperate literally so desperate that when I finally got the medication, it was delivered. I couldn't believe it. I took these pills home and I was like, I, I, and I went and stopped and never forget this. I stopped at Trader Joe's and I got a bottle of red wine because that was my poison. And I got some food and I said, okay. And I went home and I was, I just literally said, God, if this doesn't work, I will die. So it has to work because I had no place else to go. I had no, no other options. I had done everything that was humanly possible. I thought, and, and I, I mean, I was just desperate. I didn't know about any other medications. I didn't know people were using gabapentin and baclofen and acamprosate and Pyramax and all this stuff. All I knew was that this was the only medication I'd ever heard of. And it made sense. Yeah. So I took it and I poured myself a glass of wine. And I, I was kind of foolish because I, I didn't know anything about the Sinclair method. I took it on an empty stomach. You're not supposed to do that. I took the whole pill. Most people <laughs> I trade up from half yeah. to full. Yeah. Um, and I felt a little stoned and weird and I ate my dinner and the glass just sat there. I took a couple of sips and I just went, I'm not interested at all. Wow. I poured it back in the bottle. That one bottle of red wine lasted me four drinking sessions, which was unheard 
unheard of in my drinking career. Four drinking sessions for one bottle of wine. I, I, That's four it, minutes. One it, bottle it, of wine, yeah, four literally, minutes. Literally, <laughs> put it this way. I had never seen a half-drunk bottle of wine in my kitchen. In years. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were no half bottles of wine. I used to go over to people's homes and see champagne, like a half bottle of champagne with a cork in it. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, how's that even, but, well, how's that even mean, possible? You just polish it off because the bubbles would get flopped. You're insane. Anyway, so... I did that. And then the second time, and I remember this very specifically, and this is really important for the women listening. I was PMSing. And that night I drank a couple of glasses of wine on the tablet. And hormones, I found out through 13 years of, of intense research and advocacy and working with thousands of people, especially women, hormones and alcohol use disorder are so related and so intertwined because hormonal imbalances cause cravings for alcohol. So if you look at people's relapses, I could track every one of my relapses to when I was premenstrual, literally, yep. seriously. And I have all of these women that I work with that are postpartum depression, perimenopausal, menopausal, and they're all drinking heavily. And I'm saying, did you get your hormones checked? So ladies out there, if you notice anything, please track when you drink heavily and, or if you're sober, track your cravings and see if it is when your hormones are in flux and you can always use diet and exercise to try and, and hormone replacement therapy, if that's an option for you to try and regulate your hormones. So you don't have those cravings or Claudia, this is a whole other show that we, Oh, can I know. About. No, I know. We no, no, no this and, is so, but this is. No, I know that's important information. I will I will send you one of the research papers that that has been done on this. It is so imperative for women to understand that hormones and excess drinking is so intertwined. It's not even funny. I have seen so many incidents of this. But anyway, let's go back to TSM. So I tried it. Um, I, I mentioned I did a TEDx talk at the London Business School and in that. But I'll repeat it. It's worth it's worth hearing again is I was uh, there was this billboard in studio city where i lived and i every time i drove by it there was a huge glass of red wine and a steak it was a advertisement for a restaurant and every time i drove by that before tsm i would either be angry that i couldn't drink or i would be triggered to drink if i was in a drinking mode i'd be like oh let me get a bottle of red it was just so it was just such a habitual thing and i drove by that billboard that particular day three and a half months into tsm and i remember my brain said oh that's a billboard and i literally had to pull over and i started weeping because i realized i was normal again i was claudia again i had myself back my brain was normal and over the years i've realized and i became friends with dr david sinclair who discovered this method and also dr roy escapa who wrote the book that saved my life and they and what's the name of that book? You have your book, um, One uh, Little Pill. Yeah. Mine is my my documentary is called One Little Pill, which you can find on streaming services or onelittlepillmovie.com. The book that saved my life was The Cure for Alcoholism by Dr. Roy Escapa. The book that I wrote about the Sinclair Method is called Journeys. And then also I wrote my memoir, Babylon Confidential, which is really my whole story and how I found TSM and then what what happened after that. And of course, the Hollywood story as well. I've been an actress for almost forty years. Yeah, so. we didn't we didn't even talk about that. And oh, I, we're gonna get yes. back, but I have to ask you this question because it's just yes. it's so. Claudia was in the movie Clean and Sober with Michael Keaton, and every time you go to treatment, they show you that movie. So I've seen that movie about forty five times. 
So did my brother when he was in rehab. It's so right. funny. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's just ironic that you were you were cast for that character. This is way pre-addiction. I this was, was way before you were an alcoholic. It's way before I had any problem with any any substances, anything. Um, I didn't. My alcoholism really really occurred when I had started having a problem. It was my late thirties. And then I found the Sinclair method in my early 40s. So it was, but I had a, a bad period for, a, I mean, don't get me wrong. Alcohol adversely affected my life for at least a decade. But I would say the real spiraling out of control era was probably between 38 and 43. Mm-hmm. That was the really, the, the the binge cycle, the sobriety binging, sobriety binging. And I could never get a year under my belt. It was always like 10 months, nine months, four months, two weeks. You know, it was it was awful. And I was, you know, I had gained weight and I was bloated with, you know, from the alcohol. So I wasn't working as much. It was, it was really, really a rough time. I felt like I had been taken over by an alien because this is not me. You know, it's interesting because I, I was on TSM for nine years and I've been abstinent for four years in January. And I, I just thought, you know, I, I just don't, I don't understand why I can't control this. That was the big thing. You know what? Why I, I'm a person who who has their stuff together. I'm 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 dedicated. I'm hardworking. I'm loyal. I'm honest. I'm I'm a good person. And so, and then I realized, you know, it's got nothing to do with that. My brain changed, and that was the most most liberating, wonderful thing was that I don't have that guilt and that shame and that humiliation. I have some memories where I think, wow, you know, that was hard on my parents, or that was this or that, but. Honestly, I think once you realize that this is not your choice, that you didn't choose this, and that you let go of that 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 feeling of intense guilt, it liberates you to the point where you can say, okay, this is a physiological issue, it's a biological issue, it's a medical issue, and I can treat it as such. And people who have cancer don't feel guilty, people who have diabetes, you know, and I mean, if you fall into a diabetic coma because you eat a candy bar, people aren't going to shame you nearly as much as if you fall off the wagon as an alcoholic, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. people. So once I started looking at this in as a medical condition, um, an issue of the brain, a compulsive disorder, and by the way, once again, going back to women and coexisting disorders, I was also anorexic and had a, a touch of OCD as a kid. And I find that women with eating disorders, <laughs> prime candidates for alcohol use disorder, they go hand in hand. So that compulsive disorder of the brain, which I recalled very, very clearly as a kid when I would count everything. And oh, my gosh. You, I, oh, my. Well, I yeah. It too. yeah. Did you tapping rituals? and oh, oh, mine was the counting, counting, counting. Everything had to be counted and had to be a certain number. And if it was an odd number and it was just like crazy. And then as a teen, when I was anorexic, it was counting calories and starving myself and that control issue and all that stuff. And I, so I know what it's like to have a brain that is messed up. And so when alcoholism happened to me, I said, aha, this is exactly like when I was a compulsive counter or when I was compulsive dieter. I get it. So for me, it was easier to understand that this was something in my brain and that was going out of control. So after, not a moral issue. Yeah, not a moral issue. Not a moral issue at all. Are you kidding me? And for right. me, a lot of the programs that said that you failed, you know, rehab or AA, you failed. As a woman, I don't want to be told that I'm a failure, first of all, because we've been told we're failures for thousands of years or we're not worthy or anything else. And it's also not just, you know, a sense of self, but a sense of mm, I'm pretty damn smart. And if something doesn't work for me, I realize it's 
that that's not working for me. It's like going to a therapist. Some therapists are wonderful for you. Others are horrible for you and can set you back. So you find the right treatment for yourself. For me, when that billboard incident happened and I saw that my brain had changed back to normal and alcohol took no space up in my head anymore. I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't recovering from it. I wasn't obtaining it, drinking it, hiding it, lying about it. All of this space freed up in my head and I was free to think and to create and to write books again and to work as an actress and to have my life back, to have real relationships where I was present. And so that is what the moment of that is called extinction pharmacological extinction. And that's the moment where people find that they are normal again on TSM. And this usually occurs for most individuals between nine and 12 months. I was what you call an early, early responder. So it happened to me at three to four months. I have a question because you said that you had uh, four years abstinence and then nine years prior to you said that that's when you started. Um, I so did TSM for nine years. Okay. So you did it for nine years. And so when you say you're absent, so for part of the time you did it while drinking. And now that you say absent, now you don't drink at all, period. I don't drink at all. So I don't have to take the medication at all. I just found that once I went through menopause, alcohol did not serve me at all, not even in tiny amounts. Um, and I found that sleep is far more important to me than a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I would far, far prefer to get my calories from chocolate anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. so it just, it suddenly my, something shifted in my mind of saying, I don't, this doesn't serve me anymore. It doesn't serve my spiritual life. It doesn't serve my connection to God. Yes. The, yeah. the fact for nine years though, you were able to maintain your lifestyle drinking as an alcoholic because of this pill. Yeah. What? <laughs> The only, the only, and I'm very, very honest about that. The only year that was, that was rough and tumble was year five when I relapsed because someone very close to me, Dr. Sinclair died and it mm -hmm. threw me. So ironically, the man who saved my life, mm -hmm. I ended up drinking without taking the medication and it was not good. It was not good. I was, I had the most glorious five years on TSM and then I relapsed on it in year five because I realized I had not really not taken care of my own self and didn't do to the extent that I should have the inner work. And so once that lesson occurred, that relapse occurred, and I realized that I could handle death with grace, and I could handle rough things in my life in a much better way than seeking out deadening my feelings. Yeah. Once yeah. that trans sort of transformed me into a person that was far more mindful. It's interesting because when I coach people, I tell them all the things I should have been doing myself, <laughs> but I wasn't doing it because I was out, once again, addict guilt. I was out to save the world. So from 2009, when I found this, I started making a documentary, writing a book, sharing the world. I started my um, nonprofit organization, C3 Foundation in 2013. I mean, I was, I became the face of TSM. I was just trying to save the world. But a I typical addict, you know, a typical addict. I'm going to throw my whole life into this. I'm gonna, now, right? Yes, I'm going to throw my life force. And and suddenly I stopped working out. I was I people had my cell phone number. They were calling me from all over the world 24 hours a day because I was going to save everybody. Everybody was going to know about TSM. And this is, you know, and I was going up against a big pharma and this and that, you know, going talking at the Senate, the U.S. Senate and lobbying people. And I was just pouring all my energy, time, money, everything into this and to the expense of myself. It got, yeah, it, it got you. That's yeah. I mean, they say that all the time, even about therapists or they, they spend so much time helping other people. They forget about their own mental health and then. Sure. 
It's called burnout. So <laughs> I, I burnt out in year five and then I came back. And then the last few years on TSM, I became more and more distant from alcohol and realized that it really wasn't serving me in, in any way, shape or form. I, I started to notice even the slightest differences in relationships when there was alcohol involved. And I just felt that, that it wasn't, I, my body wasn't handling it as well. You know, it, it just, just because I, now I know it's the hormone connection back then. I didn't know that, but it's the hormone connection. And so I sort of, I guess I would say I outgrew it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say that you, you out, I was going to exactly say, it sounds like you outgrew it just like mm -hmm. your brain changed um, into an alcoholic. Then your, your brain evolved again yeah. into this yeah, where I, you're at where you just don't have the desire. I just don't, I don't have the desire. It's the same thing as one day I stopped counting stuff. One day I stopped being an anorexic. One day I stopped doing cocaine. I remember in the eighties, I was like, oh, this is fun. And then one day I went, this is stupid. So, it, you know, it, it, everything I went through phases, this particular phase with alcohol though, was the most long lived. I mean, I, I think I took my first drink as a kid, you know, where you steal some alcohol from your parents bar and now i realize that if you drink if you have alcoholism in your genetic family um as i did on both sides uh and you engage in the behavior drinking before your brain is fully developed you have a far larger chance of developing an alcohol use mm -hmm. disorder so your brain usually develops fully around the age of 22 23 and most kids are drinking at 14 15 they take a little sip little there european households you get a little glass of wine watered down like we did that that can that can lead to a, a bad result later on in life so if you know your kids if you know you have alcoholism in your family try to make your kids not drink until they're you yeah. know 21 22 23 i know that's not easy but but just give them a better lease on life so or yeah I'm not even going to say what I was just going to say because it's too terrible and people won't even take it as a joke. As a matter of fact, I'm going to edit okay. that out. I'm going to edit it out. Um, so hold on. How am I going to pick up? Uh, uh, so so basically, let me just tell anyone who's, who's interested out there because it's good to get the information out. If um, if if this this method, and I, I honestly believe this, I think this method is really great for people who are chronic relapsers. It works for people who are every night drinkers, it works for binge drinkers. It works for people who don't, don't, do not identify as alcoholic, but are drinking excessively um, due to a death or divorce or something, because what it does is it gives you back an off button. So what it feels like on, on naltrexone when you drink on it, you take it one hour prior to the first drink of the day, every single time you drink alcohol. And you take it, you wait an hour so that it's in the bloodstream and brain, and then you drink mindfully. And what does that mean? It means you don't pour a giant glass of wine, you pour a restaurant pour, and you drink that, you put the bottle back in the cabinet or in the refrigerator, out of sight, out of mind. And then you drink it mindfully, slowly, you don't gulp it. And then when you're done with that glass, you ask yourself, do I really want or need a second glass and why? And as we know in recovery, you don't drink when you're hungry, angry, tired, lonely, bored. Right. <laughs> you don't drink because your husband was an a-hole to you. You don't drink because you had a bad day at work. You I drink because I want to get drunk. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> this is the thing, you know, you have to ask yourself, why do I want to get drunk? Is it because I don't want to communicate with my spouse? It's because I'd rather just, you know, deaden my emotions. Is it because whatever the, the reason is, you have to start going inside and asking yourself. And when we discover that the answer is I'm bored, you know, I tell my clients it's Wednesday night. Do you have to drink? 
on a Wednesday night? Well, it's what I do when I get home. I deserve it. Women always say, I deserve wine. And I say, well, what you really deserve is a Manny Petty and a healthy meal and a nice walk and a good bath. That's what you deserve. It, you know, you're going to put toxins in your body, honestly. But if you really want to drink, why not say I'm going to do it in a celebratory fashion? Go out with my husband, do a beautiful meal or go out with my girlfriends and have, you know, sh- good quality champagne at brunch, whatever. If it's a celebration, that's that's one thing. But if it's a if it's just oh, I'm just going to watch Netflix and mindlessly pour wine <laughs> in yeah, yeah. glass, I you know, and that's another thing is if you're on a diet, you you wouldn't take the whole bag of cookies in the in the TV room with you. You'd take one or two. If you're trying to cut down on drinking, you're not going to take the bottle, plop it down next to you, and just mindlessly fill your glass up. That's not that you know you you got to start breaking habits. So what what naltrexone does is it gives you back the ability to say no. And it, and because you honestly feel after a drink or two, you feel like I've had enough. I actually want some coffee or water. Now, do you get buzzed? Like you, it totally takes the buzz away. Does it take that's the buzz? Like- that's that's not true. That is, no. That oh, is, no, that is so not true. That is wow. that's okay. on, online misinformation. You, I always tell people, don't read the crap you read online. And in England, they called it the anti-buzz pill. It's what it does is in the beginning, when the when the medication is first and foremost in your brain and you're still getting used to it and your body's getting used to drinking on an opiate antagonist, what happens is you can feel meh. Like I, when I took a sip of the wine, I was like, what's the point? Yeah. But then over time, as your body gets used to the medication, drinking becomes more normal. So yes, you feel relaxed from the alcohol. You feel that warmth from the alcohol. And yes, you can get drunk on it. The, the difference is you don't want to get drunk because you, you're you kind of satisfied. It would be like if you had a magic pill that if you had one chocolate, you would be completely satisfied with <laughs> chocolate. Well, that's what this is like. So you, you, you take the tablet, obviously you have to, you have to do other things to help the pill along. It's not some magic medication that you're gonna drink and go, okay, I'm done. You know, you have to understand why you're drinking. You have to not drink for the wrong reasons. And you also have to be mindful. I tell people they should keep a drink log. We have a free drink log app on the website. Lots of free resources. We have peer support meetings, 10 of them a week live. We have a forum. We have Facebook pages. So you can get all the support you need and really dive deep when you do this method. And we found that people do much better when they do implement these these other resources. Yes, yeah, so the sense of community and well, we have, uh, that's we have so important. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a community and we don't read from uh, a, an, own, uh, an old book. We, we, we talk about real life circumstances. Everybody gets an opportunity to say, you know, I, I don't understand why I drank too much. I think I drank through the medication last night or I did this or I did that. And you have a lot of loving support. And right. un- unlike a lot of other programs, when people do relapse or they go out on TSM, you know, there's a loving community saying it's OK, you can get back on it. It's not it's not. A, they don't know, beat you up. Right. They don't. Yeah. They don't shoot not, their wounded. <laughs> no, no, we don't shoot our wounded. It's not you know, there is no failure. As long as you're you're motivated and you comply with the medication protocol, then you're doing great on TSM. Everything else is icing on the cake. And if you if you go on holiday and you forget your medication and you relapse and you drink excessively, you come home and you say, well, that's never going to happen again. I'm going to put a pill pill holder keychain on my keychain and I'm going to put some medication in my dop kit so that never happens again. And so we live and learn. 
And people do get lazy. And I think one of the reasons why I relapsed in year five is because I sort of got lazy. I, you know, the human brain protects you and it, it makes you forget how bad your drinking really was. And that's just because we don't want to carry that guilt and that burden around with us. And so quite often people romanticize their drinking career. They say, oh, but I had so much fun drinking in Italy and I had so much fun. It's because what they're not remembering is throwing up in their friend's car. The blackouts. Or yeah. themselves at the wedding or blackouts or, or, you know, stripping down in front of strangers or cheating on their spouse or whatever that they did while drunk. It's the euphoric recall that they go to. Yeah, yeah. euphoric recall. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So anyway, yeah. Claudia, this, this is like something that I can I can talk. You and I can talk all day about everything so much. First of all, I can't even believe how much more we have in common with the anorexia and the OCD and the counting and whatever. Um, but th this if I would have had this information yeah. 20 years ago, I think my life would have been a lot different. Exactly. And that's yeah. why I want, that's why I'm always um, grateful to people like you for having me on, because there's a lot of people out there that do need a little more help than just peer support. Yeah. And so that I always say, you know, there's many medications. If naltrexone doesn't work for you, look into the rest of them. There's six or seven really great medications for alcoholism. So and don't, don't give up. You know, there's one for cravings. There's one for withdrawal. There's one that, you know, there, there's you can you can just go to a really good addiction specialist or one of these um, telemedicine companies like RIA or Alcure or Workit or, um, you know, any of these places that will give you a comprehensive program and a breathalyzer. Don't give up. They're taking insurance now, you know, that, that, that there's, there's just so many different ways. If you really want privacy, privacy, excuse me, <laughs> I lived in England. <laughs> um, um, if you want privacy, you can go to c3foundation.org, which is my nonprofit, and you can get all the resources, including find a provider, telemedicine or in uh, in office doctors throughout the entire United States uh, and Canada. Both countries are fully covered with doctors. So you can find the help you need. You can also do it privately with telemedicine. You don't have to tell your own private doctor if you don't want to. You can do this and not tell people at work. You can take the medication. And if you're in a business like hospitality or, you know, I talk to a lot of people who have these these work lives that involve alcohol, you don't have to tell anybody. You can Take the pill before you go to the function, drink like a normal person and go home and while say, pat yourself on the back. Well, that went well. You know, this is the thing. It works for lawyers, for airline pilots, for doctors, people who can't go to an AA meeting and say, I'm an alcoholic. You know, right. yeah. not every, you know, lawyers, police officers, they can't go. People, EMTs, these are some of the funeral directors. These, these businesses, these jobs have the highest incidence of alcohol use disorders because they're such stressful jobs. These people drink like mad. Now, how are they going to go to a, a public meeting? They can't. They can't because they'd lose their job. You want an airline pilot? You know, uh, <laughs> they would yeah, lose yeah, their right, job. Right, right. So, yeah. so this is also great for people out there who have a pressing need for privacy. So, you know, I think it's it works on so many levels. And there are few and there are few people out there that are that are biologically prone to this. And they don't really have a lot of other issues to deal with. And those people, the medication alone works great. Other people, it's better for them to have more support, the medication and a meeting. You know, and, I, right. And the I've always yeah. argued that there's no reason why you can't take the medication. And if you have a good support group in AA or in um, any of smart recovery or and you don't want to tell them you're on a medication, then just go to the meetings and get the support you need. 
you know, yeah. uh, uh, hopefully one day there'll be open-minded uh, medication assisted treatment, 12 step recovery programs where you can go and take, you can say, yeah, I'm on Baclofen, I'm on a campersate, I'm on naltrexone, but I want the community of sober people because my goal is sobriety. A lot of people who do TSM, their goal is to drink normally again, but yeah. a good 25% go sober on, on TSM. Yeah, I, 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 it's brilliant. I, I believe my personal case for me, I, I believe that the medication would be great doing it sober, working with my, you know, therapist, staying on my, you know, journey with God and all of that with this medication. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I am so, so glad that you came on and helped educate us on this because it was wonderful to be here. And let me just say one more thing, if I may, um, most doctors in the United States prescribe naltrexone with abstinence and they tell you to take it in the morning. If you're taking it for cravings and you are abstinent, please, please do yourself a favor and take it in the early evening when you're prone to crave mm. Not in the morning, because two reasons. Number one, you're going to block all of the endorphin that happened naturally during the day. So making love, eating spicy, wow. food, your coffee, playing with your children, animals, working out all of that, you're going to block instead of targeting the one thing you want, which is your cravings for alcohol. So I think doctors are incorrect. It also wears off. So if you're, if you're young and you have a high metabolism by 5 PM, that medication is no longer even active in your body. So then you start craving alcohol at night when most people drink, right? So yeah. You take naltrexone with abstinence, please switch the time you take it to the late afternoon, early evening for your own benefit. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Claudia, Christian, everybody. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Pleasure. And I want to invite you to come back on the show again and talk about. I some would other love things. to. Jeff. Thank you so much. Thanks. For All having right. Me on. Sober exposure. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Need more? Of course you do. The show's all about needing more. Go to my website at soberexposure.show or get stuck on my Instagram at soberexposure underscore podcast.